quick announcement before we get into this week's episode. We are talking about how to draft the Turbo Cube this week, which is one of the cubes that's going to be on offer at KubeCon in just a few weeks. If you didn't get a chance to buy a pass for KubeCon when they were on sale this summer, there is an opportunity to get in last minute. There is an interest form we're going to link in the show notes where there will be an opportunity to buy last minute passes. So if you really want to go and you didn't get a chance to buy your pass, check out that link in the show notes. Now enjoy a particularly embarrassing intro. Packs in his hand, patience grows thin, flicking cards waiting for the draft to begin. First pack is cracked, he begins to beg. Forget the rest, he just wants to open an egg with cost reduced. Bad cards are now busted, all he sees is Jade Mage, absolutely disgusted. As the pack starts to flow, he is in the tank. Pick four trade routes, who's he got to thank? Taking only blue spells. Passing Savannah, he can cast all his picks with only one mana. The draft is over soon as it began. A turn one win, at least that's the plan. Land count has gone down and the speed has gone up. Glass cannons are sometimes known to blow up, but he's casting his spells, drawing card after card. Go to end step. Guess he moves to discard. He's drafting the Guild Globe. He's drafting for speed. He's in the zone. Cold as stone, taking picks with pure greed. Prophetic prism, chromatic sphere, kaleidostone. Jack-o'-lantern, terrarium, and maze mind tome. He's drafting the guild globe. If you're lost, we're talking about the Turbo Cube. Only cube of Anthony's, that's extremely rude. All spells and abilities reduced by two. Now there's no such thing as mana screw. When you're new to this cube, you're gonna get clowned. I'm telling you, friends, so rings a build around. Still, some cards are mediocre. No white main lion, but there is a stone cloak. Land count has gone down and the speed has gone up. Glass cannons are sometimes known to blow up. But he's casting his spells, drawing card after card. Go to end step. Guess he moves to discard. He's drafting the guild globe. He's drafting for speed. He's in the zone. Cold as stone, taking picks with pure greed. Prophetic prism, chromatic sphere, kaleidostone, jack-o'-lantern, terrarium, and maze mind tome. He's drafting the guild globe. He's drafting for speed. He's drafting the guild globe. Welcome to Lucky Paper Radio. I'm Andy, and I'm here with my co-host, Anthony. I am become meth, speedy upper of cubes. Okay, I see okay, I see where you're going with that. You know how uh, Oppenheimer mm-hmm. made the nuclear bomb, then he doesn't like the right. nuclear bomb that he made? Yes. And that's like you with was, the turbo cube. I was just telling me that that was actually a quote from the Bhagavad Gita, but uh, yeah, I see, okay, I see where you're going with that. Well, I mean, he said it. Uh-huh. About, he said it too yes, about becoming death. I get it. It's like uh, great joke. Let's it's like talk, Michael let's Scott really quoting joke. Oppenheimer quoting the Bhagavad whatever you said. Mm-hmm. Yep. Mm-hmm. Not a religious scholar over here, people. I called you. Uh, I am become meth speedy upper of cubes. Meth speed. Get it instead of death. I called you that because we're talking about the Turbo Cube, a creation of yours that has grown. It's become <laughs> hugely popular. That you don't like, Anthony. 
I mean, it's it's. I like Magic the Gathering. This is still Magic oh, it, the Gathering. It's 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 a Good difference news. of degrees. But I, I mean, you know, my main cube, regular cube, is something that I've lovingly put tons and tons of time in, and I just love these really basic cards and playing a really simple, straightforward game of blah, Magic. Blah blah blah. This was last know, week's episode. Synergy between all your cards and drafting well, and the Turbo Earl cube of Squirrel kind of turns that on its head. And Earl of Squirrel is definitely unplayable here, and instead you get to take a lot of game actions. It occurs to me that we probably have maybe a decent chunk of listeners that don't actually know what this cube is did you know that the episode we recorded about this cube was episode 13 that is wild it was yeah. over two years ago that we talked about this cube for the first time no, our, i don't i don't believe that and our listenership has grown considerably so i mean you've mentioned it in passing on our set of episodes i'm sure it's come up here or there but for those that don't know this cube anthony why don't you tell them what it is because just like the regular cube they're gonna have an opportunity to draft this at cubecon so we're doing another draft primer episode uh, so this cube is, it's, a, it's, it's just got one simple little twist on the rules of magic, just to spice things up a little bit, and that is all players start with an emblem that says, all spells and abilities that you're casting or activating cost two generic mana less. If, you, if you're a judge and want to help me actually word that uh, emblem a little bit more correctly, I would love that, as well as if we get any rules interactions wrong throughout this episode, but other than that, it's just a normal regular cube, right? Maybe you should get some emblems printed for KubeCon. That's a really good from idea. Ooh, that's a little bit late, last minute, but no, we'll see time. if we can make that happen. We got time. I need to get new sleeves, too. Uh, anyway, no, don't that's get new sleeves thing. before KubeCon. <laughs> they're going to get ruined at KubeCon. Let this be the last hmm, hurrah of interesting, them. Interesting. Interesting. I could see it both ways. Everybody, except for the first draft, will just assume it was the previous KubeCon draft that got them all disgusting. Fair. So... Uh, <laughs> This cube just plays out a little bit ridiculously. It was inspired somewhat by uh, the the draft they had on Arena for a little while. That was a turbo draft where they just gave you a big discount on all your spells. And that was a Coria, right? Uh, they did it, I think, for a couple sets. I, the first one that I remember was a Coria, yeah. And it just was really fun and novel to reevaluate a bunch of cards with this this discount and and think about like it's basically a whole new draft experience from the same set of cards. And in line with that, this cube is very much leaning into the discount and includes a ton of effects that are really really effective in a meaningful way by that discount. There's nothing that is truly broken, like one card combos, like you could imagine if you had Basalt Monolith, that would on its own just make infinite mana. But there are a lot of things that are extremely efficient and powerful and do ridiculous stuff uh, when played together in this environment. Yeah, so you are playing with the most powerful end of what this discount can possibly do. Like you said, you're not playing the really dumb, obvious inclusions. There's yeah, probably there's a-, a couple dozen automatic infinite mana enablers or automatic infinite damage enablers over magic's history and just like that's not fun just to play a card and win immediately you got to put these cards together in interesting ways still to make to pull a win out from a design perspective one of the challenges was okay we have this we want to play a lot of these really powerful effects how do we now also shape this into an environment where you do still have some agency and make meaningful choices and have some variety of the decks that are gonna that are gonna pop up so a couple things are worth being aware of as I mean, a lot of things game. are worth a lot being of aware things of. are worth this being episode aware is going to be a lot different than the one about the regular cube this is not like well if you're in blue white you probably want to be looking at these things this is like this chunk of cards is completely reimagined and like earth-shatteringly powerful these kinds of effects are way better than you would expect or way worse than you would expect this is like really just kind of priming you for a very different kind of magic yeah, and I, I hope that we can give you that kind of primer because I think that it will be especially valuable in this environment. I feel like we've seen a lot of people when they approach this, they kind of have a little bit of a, a roller coaster in terms of how much fun they're having with the cube where they'll start the draft, they'll be like, oh my god, all these cards are just totally busted. Like, my deck is going to be insane because it's That's the problem. That's the problem is really, everyone comes yep. out of the draft mm-hmm. thinking they drafted a busted deck because they're looking at 
how powerful it's going to be without really understanding how powerful the environment can truly be. Right. I mean, which is the, the whole thing I think about cube design is the power level of the cards matters relative to each other. And that works in the regular cube where we're saying we're powering down a lot of the effects, uh, but it still just matters how these effects stack up together. Here, we're powering everything up. And again, that's all that matters. It doesn't matter how much your card is completely broken in half compared to how the card normally functions. It matters how it functions in that environment. So I feel like we've seen a lot of people draft their deck. They're really excited. And the expression after their opponent's first turn is very different and much more downcast. But then I think most people, by the end of the, the draft, they... Are we both just picturing Patrick? I, I am definitely picturing Patrick, but a couple of people, as other people have had this exact experience. And then after the draft, they're thinking, well, I got steamrolled. I did not understand what this environment was about, but now I really want to draft it again because I've seen what my opponents were able to do with this. So hopefully we can sort of get you to experience that optimal second draft uh, with this episode. But yeah, maybe yeah, I would definitely faster. recommend, I would say, try and draft this cube at KubeCon if you're going to be there twice, because the second time will be a very different experience. Yeah, and I think it's actually going to be really interesting to see how different this is with people that are playing it for the first time. Because whenever we draft this cube, which is less often than the regular cube, partially because you don't like it as much. <laughs> uh, it, it is fun occasionally. <laughs> it's fun every once in a while, but it definitely is. In, it's an intense experience. Com I Compared to my notes on the regular cube from last week, I'm much less confident I have a like holistic grasp That's on what is possible in this environment. Yeah. So I'm much more willing to accept that like people are going to do totally unforeseen things or draft a deck I'd never seen before and be really successful with it. That said, I think there's still a lot of information we can impart to you listening to this episode. But whenever we draft this, it's always some combination of people that have drafted it a bunch, like you and I, and somebody or a couple people that are new. And so we always have that like high contrast in most of our draft pods. And I got to say, it does really change. Like Sitting next to somebody who's new is changes the kind of cards you get to put in your deck because they will oftentimes overlook a really powerful card because... They don't quite understand how the how those cards interacted in the space. So I feel like pods at KubeCon specifically with presumably all players that have never actually played this cube are going to be really interesting. Yeah, for sure. So I do think we should go over the rules a little bit and how some of these actually play out. Uh, so all spells and abilities that you're casting or activating cost two generic mana less. This only discounts generic mana. So if you have a thing that costs one and a green, it's only going to take off that one. You're still going to have to pay a green mana. It so does... one and a green and two and a green are effectively the exact same mana cost in right. this environment. Absolutely. And if something costs three and a green, you're still going to have to pay... Until your a... opponent plays a Thalia, then it kind of matters. Right. Uh, <laughs> but that's actually a great point. Uh, so Thalia, Guardian of Thraben, which adds one mana to all spells, your discount does still apply to that. So if you're going right. to cast a Chromatic Sphere, which normally costs one, one, you add the additional costs and then remove the reduced cost, and you'll end up at something that still costs an effective zero. And again, if you're a judge and we're getting these rules wrong, please feel free to reach out and correct me, but I'm pretty sure that part we got on lockdown. That makes sense to me, certainly, but I'm not a judge. Some other quirks, it doesn't discount Phyrexian mana. You can still pay the two life so you can make things not cost any mana, but it will not remove Phyrexian mana from the cost. It doesn't change the converted mana value of cards, which is relevant for a few things like Tribute Mage that fetches an artifact with mana value of two or Epic Downfall, which cares about destroying things of a certain size. Even though it changes the cost that you're paying when you're putting the card in the stack, the mana value of those cards in other zones is always still the same. Let's and all of this is in card. keeping with cost reduction mechanics, which are present in Magic, right? Like right. Helm of Awakening says all spells cost one generic less to cast. That is half of this emblem minus the activated ability thing. So these are not inconsistent with other effects you might have played with in other contexts. Yeah, I mean, that's honestly one of my favorite parts about this cube. It's just that it's such a great example. made a really, really drastic change to the way the game works, and the game 
the the game system fully supports that and everything just works. Right. I don't think you could do that if you took Monopoly and said like we're just going to randomly like tweak this number in a huge way. I don't think the game system would support that. And it's that's really just one of impressive the coolest things about Magic to be Especially honest. Especially considering there's like 28,000 game pieces and they all still work with this rules change. So critically, it is really important that this effect works on effects that are activated from all zones. So sure, it works when you're casting your spells. It also works on activated abilities on your creatures or artifacts when they're in play. It also works on effects like cycling that are just an activated ability that you activate from your hand. So cycling to generic is now just cycling for free, which you might uh, have a good time with cycling a bunch of cards. and, And that's a big thing that you can do here. I know there's at least one card, too, with an activated ability in the graveyard, and that also would get reduced. Yep. One thing it doesn't do is reduce the costs of triggered abilities. So there are very few of these. Drakehaven might actually be the only one currently in the list because it is a little bit confusing, but I think that card's kind of cool here, uh, specifically because it doesn't say pay this cost, do a thing. It says whenever something happens, you can then pay that cost. It doesn't reduce that. It also doesn't Not reduce... Not an activated ability, even though it is an ability that... Is activated, kind of, but it's actually triggered, not activated. (laughs) Uh, So be mindful of that. Another thing it doesn't reduce is if your opponent plays spells that ask you to pay some mana. So not a tax that's adding additional cost, but if it says counter target spell unless you pay three mana, you do still have to pay the full three, which is interesting and makes a lot of weird, junky counter spells that you won't remember from one weird draft format uh, very relevant in this environment. I think you should talk a little bit, too, about the kinds of cards that get a lot better, because I remember in the early days of the Turbo Cube, you were looking at all kinds of expensive cards, right? Like, now a six drop only costs four mana. Like, how good can that possibly be? And you very quickly realize that actually the best things are just three drops that are two generic mana and and one pip of any color. Absolutely. That's a really easy trap to fall into and goes back to the fact that it's it's really the relative change in power level that matters, not the power level that's changed on any one individual card. Sure, if you take Elspeth Sun's Champion and say, let's make this cost four mana, that card's insane now. It's like, it's a totally busted card, Mm -hmm. but you're essentially shaving a third of the mana cost off of this six mana spell, whereas if you take a three mana spell and cut it down to one mana, you're cutting it into a third. So it's such a bigger escalation of difference. And obviously it comes down to the way cards are costed. Sure, there's some three mana spells that just are not very powerful, Um, but if you imagine Wizards of the Coast designing these two cards and making a six drop have a proportionate amount of power level to a three drop we are tweaking that in a way that those relative values scale up on the cheaper spells much much more yeah and that can be felt when you on turn three get to cast three three drops yeah i'm pretending right now for a minute that you don't have a bunch of mana on turn one just to make us a little simpler (laughs) but but yeah you can imagine multi-spelling with three drops uh, for one mana instead uh, is a lot better than just getting to cast elspeth a couple turns early right so the cube is very much leaning into this and playing just a lot of cards that are powerful in this environment with the special rules which means there's a lot of cards that cost two generic mana and one colored pip or just two generic mana there are a couple that are just one and a one and a colored pip that are you know disproportionately powerful spells turns out snapcaster mage is still a pretty powerful magic card and there are very very few that just the discount doesn't reward at all So that's kind of the baseline. You're going to take a lot of game actions to be able to play spells very quickly. There is a fair amount of fast mana in this environment, uh, and that really shapes games. Decks also play a frighteningly low land count. The combination of having a bunch of things that have cycling or things that are similar to cycling that just allow you to essentially reduce the deck size uh, by a huge amount. There are also a lot of cards with basic land cycling or specific types of land cycling. For example, uh, Sanctum Plow Beast that has plain cycling, island cycling. These cards are essentially now just fetch lands because you don't have to pay that two mana. You can just fetch one of your 
basics or a dual land even. So these turn into fetch lands. So all of that added up and the fact that your deck is going to be extremely low curving because most of your spells cost one or zero mana means that you're likely to play like five to seven lands, uh, depending on how you slice it, potentially even a lot lower. Yeah, and honestly, I think the other big factor there is that games do not last very many turns. Yeah, great You point. do not need your third or fourth land drop. The game might be over by then, so uh, you really only need to make sure you hit your like first two. Uh, is What I would say is like you need those, and then beyond that, you might not even need lands anymore. There are a very small number of cards that do, even after the discount, cost more than one mana. Uh, so there's some powerful things. We'll get into individual cards later, but you can cast Oko Thief of Grounds for two mana. Do I recommend it? Eh, probably not. Yeah. Be really mindful of, of that cost. I feel like Oko is in here as a performance art piece. Of, <laughs> this card is actually not that good. Yeah, either a performance art piece or just a useful benchmark to compare how things are changing. It only got a third less expensive in terms of mana cost, and does very fair things compared to what's going on in this Oko environment. Oko is the fairest magic card in this environment, pretty much. You got some other fair stuff in That's there, but, uh, but Oko <laughs> is definitely not a power outlier. Let's put it that way. So another quirk of this environment, specifically because of the way that the, the draft works, in fact, that you have such a low land count, this cube is actually a little bit bigger in terms of what you're drafting. You're going to be drafting four packs of 13 cards, which, again, just means you're not totally scraping for playables. But a lot of that pool is still going to make it into your deck because you're still playing a 40-card deck, even though a lot of these cards are going to be in it. Yeah, the draft does not feel bigger relative to the environment because, like you said, your land count is so low and your basic land count is really low. Like, I have learned to rate the basic land cyclers much more lowly than other types of cyclers because I might only have one or two basics in my deck or none sometimes. Sometimes none, yeah. Yeah, yeah. it is worth being aware of those basic land cyclers and think about how those are fitting into your mana base. Sometimes it is a challenge just to get all the colors of lands you need in that small number of them that, that you actually want to play. When we first sleeved up this cube, I think I had 11 of each color, and that was plenty because, you know, uh, it's like you're playing an island, you're playing a swamp and a forest, and that's kind of it. Uh, one exception we'll get to is green decks, right, and I was so we'll say. have plenty of forests, but for the most part, yeah, you're playing a very low land count and a frighteningly low basic count. We've alluded to it, but most of you have not played this cube. The way that turns go are uh, turns are very long, and you take many, 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 many game actions. A lot of times you begin a turn, and you have no idea where it's going to go, because what you're looking at in your hand are three or four cards that are just going to cycle into more cards, and so you don't actually know what the turn has in store, because half your hand is going to be gone and replaced with new cards at the beginning of the turn. So because of that, you're constantly reevaluating what's going on in the turn and how things are playing out. Um, this is somewhat dependent on your deck, but honestly, I think every deck to some degree is going to have uh, these elements in it. So uh, the first couple turns are most of the game, and they're, uh, they're important to how they play out. I would say an environment where you really want to win the uh, die roll. So practice your die rolls at home. Yeah, that, if I was to give you one piece of advice to drafting this environment well, it's uh, win the die roll. Yeah, it does matter a lot. So I think that covers all of the rules, quirkiness, and the way the format works. Is there anything else we're missing? I don't think so. When I was making my notes for this episode, I just immediately started thinking in terms of cards, because that's how I think about this environment. This broader view you took, I think, is really important, and I'm glad you did take it, because I would have forgotten to do that. But when it comes to actually drafting this cube, I don't think in any other terms beyond this point, other than just what cards am I putting in my deck. I don't even really think in terms of colors. Like, is my deck a color? Maybe, sometimes, but I'm trying to play as many colorless cards as I can that don't require me to pay any mana, so the card is effectively colorless. And then I'll have a couple of enablers or win conditions kind of splashed, and with all the land cyclers, you can oftentimes kind of play whatever colors you want in your deck. This is not how everyone drafts this environment. I guess we should say, I think you are my approach to this cube are kind of different. Yeah, I definitely don't take the same approach. 
I often try and keep my mana base very focused, and I'm not sure if this is correct, but I feel like when I'm only playing, here's my one spell, it's either red or black, I want to make sure I can cast both of those spells, so I'm really focused on making sure I have a dual land that I can cast to do that. Uh, and because of that, I often end up pretty narrowly in two-color decks, but there are also a fair number of sort of incidental mana fixers, sources of any color of your choice, so I'm not sure which approach is correct, but I, I would just definitely point out that there is that pressure on your mana base, at whether or not you try to work around that in a different way is uh, kind of unknown. Do you want to start with Turbo Power, the cards that I think become power in this cube? Yeah, let's do it. So I, to me, this is like the the reason for the season, right? This is what makes the cube special. These are the cards that you've decided to include that are big power outliers. They do broken stuff that no other magic card does. So we have the eggs, Skycloud, Darkwater, Shadowblood, Mossfire, and Sungrass. All of these cards say make two mana of their two respective colors and draw a card. Right. So these eggs all cost one generic mana to cast, so which zero. is free. And they have an ability that costs two and makes two generic mana. So zero. And even though it looks like you're just filtering some mana, that two in the cost of that activ activated ability is reduced to zero. So yeah, it's just zero mana, make two mana, and draw a card. So this ups your storm count, makes mana, and draws a card. So a storm player's uh, wet dream. It's, in, it's like if you like casting Black Lotus in a vintage cube, but you you wish you had more cards to work with to do stuff with that mana, these are these are for you. Yeah, if Black Lotus was in this cube, it'd be way worse than these cards. I would take these cards so, over yeah. Black Lotus every time. In the same category, we have Chromatic Sphere, Chromatic Star, Jack-O-Lantern, Golden Egg, Guild Globe, and Prophetic Prism. These are all the cards that have similar kind of play patterns. I'm not going to read the, all the rules text of all of them. You can go check it out on the uh, the cube page and also the cards mentioned page for this episode, but they all essentially do that same thing. I have a decent-sized list here, Anthony, of like near eggs, and the first one's Terrarian, which does do the same thing as all these other cards, but comes into play tapped, which I think makes a huge difference. I do have like a gap in my rating of these cards between all the ones we just listed and Terrarian. Yeah, I agree. That that coming in tapped is a big downside. Guild Globe you mentioned also I think is the most powerful just because it does give you full flexibility on the, the colors that you're generating. Yeah, if we're going to... This is like the classic, uh, you know, in the limited sure, podcast yeah. <laughs> if you're like, which of these Mythic Rares is better? If you get the choice, take Guild Globe. Sure. That's the one you want. Then there's a couple cards that do the same thing. They make mana and they draw a card, but they have some prerequisite. So this is cards like Manamorphose. You have to spend a mana to cast it, a red or a green, but you get two mana of any colors out of it and you draw a card. So it's a mana positive, card positive spell, but you do have to actually spend a mana to get it going. Um, Frantic Search is similar, but it doesn't actually make mana till after turn one, because on turn one, you're only going to be untapping the one land that gave you the mana, presumably to cast Frantic Search. But on turn two or three, when you have two or three lands in play, Frantic Search is mana positive, and it's not card positive technically, but so oftentimes there are going to be dead cards you're not going to need that that looting is really powerful. So I put that in kind of a very similar category. Kaleidostone is a weird one. Uh, this is kind of like an egg. It does draw you a card when it enters the battlefield. It is free to cast, uh, but instead of having a you know pay two to filter it into two mana of a specific color combination, it's pay five generic to filter into Wooburg. So this can essentially jump you from three to five, right? Because that five generic is reduced by two. So once you get to three mana, you can then turn this into a Guild Globe-esque effect and give you those two mana back. So that card, also quite good. Yeah, it is really funny. This card just, even in this context, looks really, really bad. Bad. But then you think, because you think, oh, how, how often am I going to use that ability? But you've got to take this new vanilla test to it and just say, this just costs zero and draws me a card. There's no cost to including this into my deck. So it's really easy to take this card early. And it does turn out that reducing the cost on that ability also means it comes up occasionally. Yeah. And we're still in the 
A tier of this list. This is what I consider power in this cube. The last ones I have here are not power in isolation, but I think they become power or power adjacent once you have one of the other pieces of power. And this is things like Moon Silver Key, which is a free tutor for any of your eggs. Costs zero mana to play, zero mana to activate, and it goes and gets a cheap artifact, puts it into your hand, or an artifact with an activated ability specifically, and puts it into your hand. If you have an egg, that's just plus one storm count to your egg, right? Now you have a second copy of that egg in your deck with an additional storm count trigger. There's also Trinket Mage, Tribute Mage, Archaeo Mender, which is a card that rebuys a cheap artifact from your graveyard, and Fabricate, which are also all ways to find eggs. They do cost a mana, but a lot of these eggs are actually giving you two mana back. So this can still be a mana positive chain, right? To tribute mage for your guild globe is still mana positive. You paid the blue to get that tribute mage on the stack, but then when you get that guild globe and put it in play, you're going to draw another card and you're going to get two mana of any color out of it. So that's my full list of like A tier turbo power. When I'm drafting this cube, these are the cards I want to see in my opening pack. Yeah, and these are cards that definitely define the format in that they, you know, we're really leaning into the turbo-ness of you're just turboing through your deck and getting to a bunch of stuff very quickly. They are obviously high picks, and hopefully everybody at the table is taking them highly. So it's not like your deck is going to be absolutely full of them, uh, but there are a lot of them. So you, you will hopefully have a couple, and especially with those effects, like you mentioned, like Tribute Mage can give your deck just some more redundancy and, and have those effects available. Yeah, I mean, I think it's important to note that all these cards we just listed were colorless, except for Manamorphose, which is red or green, and then a bunch of blue cards. Frantic Search, Trinket Mage, Tribute Mage, or Commander Fabricate. So the blue decks, I think, are the ones that thrive at doing the most unfair stuff because they have the most redundancy and the most ways to do their unfair egg thing. So I think that's the most important category of cards to be aware of. They are defining to this environment, and this is the one category we explain to people when they're new to the cube. We're like, Take a these second are, look. These are power. <laughs> Take a second look at anything this, that says make mana sad. draw a card, like look at it and think about whether or not that's just a free cantripping ritual. And hopefully that gets through to people when they're playing the cube because sometimes you get past these cards and uh, it feels feels bad because, well, it feels good for you, feels but good, it, yeah. you feel bad that you failed to communicate to the person passing to you that uh, these are essential tools for this environment. Did you go through and count exactly how many cards you would take over a turbo power card of the ones we just listed in this cube? Because I did. I went through the entire cube, and I have the number of how many cards I would take over them. Pack one, pick one. If I had to guess, I would say maybe six cards, and it probably depends on the day that you ask. Oh, wow. Okay. My exact number is I wonder if we have the same list. (laughs) There's going to be some... This We're getting into the area now where I think people that are experienced drafting this cube will like probably disagree a little bit on exactly how these cards shake out, but... I have six cards. I will very happily pack one, pick one over power. And they are Monastery Mentor, Psy Maverick Thopterist, Teferi's Tutelage, Sahili Sublime Artificer, Retrofitter Foundry, and Aetherflux Reservoir. Five of these six are just cards that turn into a very fast clock and a very scary win condition if you are doing all of the broken, unfair stuff that we just listed amongst the A tier of the broken cards in this cube. If you have your Monastery Mentor in play and you're, you know, playing a bunch of these cantripping eggs and just drawing more cards and making more mana, every single time you're spinning out another Monk with Prowess, and as soon as you can attack with those cards, they're gonna die, pretty much. Same with Psy, same with Sahili, same with Aetherflux Reservoir, and Tiferi's Tutor, which is a little weird, but same thing. It's a win condition because so many of these effects are gonna draw a card, and you could very quickly just mill your opponent out. We've definitely seen turn one mill wins in this cube off of back up to Fairy's tutelage 
Yeah, my list would be very similar. I would actually put Teferi's Tutelage maybe highest there, just because that is one of the most effective and scariest win conditions. Uh, it, it really just can end the game on, on turn one. Same with Aetherflux Reservoir. This card, again, it, it costs four generic mana, so you're paying full two for it, but it is a legitimate win condition, especially if you've built your deck to, you know, storm off as much as possible. I would also put Mystic Redaction in this category. It's maybe a little bit less powerful than Teferi's Tutelage, but still very effective. Sahili, I'm a little bit lower on just because it's only making one ones and it does cost two colored mana, but it's definitely in the same ballpark. Do you agree on Retrofitter Foundry? I think this is the most controversial inclusion in this uh, S plus tier here. You know, it's really tough. If, if the criteria is, would you take this over an egg? I think the answer is no, but it is still, it is, this is the card that I most want to open aside from those eggs, I think, because it's just a legit win condition on its own and it, it's extremely powerful. It is a little bit slower than some of these other effects. That, it's a lot slower, yeah. Um, it doesn't go infinite with itself. If you want to do the thing, you do put one mana in per cycle to start generating a bunch of tokens. But once you have a little bit of mana, you can activate this quite a few times and you get some flexibility in terms of the kinds of tokens you're making. We're, again, yeah, talking about differences of, of minor degrees. Yeah, I think um, this card is not necessarily as good of a win condition in the unfair decks, though... I will say I do like having a mana sink in this environment because we just listed a lot of ways to generate mana and it is entirely possible. Like I said, you start a turn not knowing where it's going to go. I've definitely ended turns and just like had four mana burn off because it's like, well, I like went crazy, did a bunch of things, but mm -hmm. then I had yep, nothing else to spend your, his mana your on. Storm counter of here's the storm count, here's how much red mana, here's how much green mana I have, and yet then you just say go. <laughs> yeah, this is nowhere near as efficient a win condition as your monastery mentors or your psi or whatever, but. If you do have some extra mana and you are casting all these extra spells, you can make an army pretty quickly with this thing. It's more fair, and I think there's a good argument to be made that if you are trying to draft the best possible deck, you want to be doing things that are as unfair as possible. But I think this is worth mentioning here because it is right up there in the egg territory for me and something I will sometimes pick over an egg. Something else I know is going to be contentious, but I would still put in this category of, you know, win conditions that don't take a lot of support to really make them work is Urza, Lord High Artificer. It does take some more work. I think players are in pretty different places on this, but it's it's a card that I'm excited to play here. So it is fun. It, it does a lot in this environment for sure. I think it's in the very powerful, but below eggs for me pretty solidly, which is the next category I have here, interestingly, which is uh, all of these cards. And so I, I should note too that one of my conditions for taking a card over an egg is that it is a literal win condition. It will win the game with the rules text on that card, which Urza will not, right? Urza will make a bunch of mana, uh, and maybe I guess you can win the game by make attacking 12, with, your one, with your one big construct, but uh, I don't count that as a win condition if I'm looking at my deck. I would probably count that as like an enabler or something. If I look at Monastery Mentor, side Tutelage, those are all win condition with a capital W. And I think the reason these are such high picks is that there's not that many of these kinds of cards, right? I mean, what you're doing in this cube is very unique. You're casting largely a bunch of artifacts and colorless spells. So, like, Young Pyromancer is not a payoff for this. You're not casting a bunch of instants and sorceries. So if you look across Magic's history, this is kind of all you really get in terms of cards that are powerful enough that have this kind of snowballing, very fast clock win condition. And so there's only six of these. We listed, I don't know, 20-some cards amongst the eggs and egg-adjacent and egg-tutor cards. So the fact that there's only six of these, that's why I take them so highly because I would love to have one of these in my deck. Totally. And there are a lot of other cards and things happening in this environment and sort of more narrow thematic decks you can draft. But these are specifically the things that are, if you're doing the most powerful, most just broken thing you can do in this environment, these are the win conditions you really need. And you do need to have a win condition because otherwise your opponent's going to have one first. 
I think this is maybe where you and I differ on our approach to the environment. I always want to be doing the unfair thing. I I want to be, but it's hard. Everybody else wants to do it. I, I have not been convinced of the like. We'll talk about. I'm sure this like green jade mage deck and the like hate bears deck. I, I did force hate bears once off a pretty lackluster pack one pick one, and I ended up with kind of the nut hate bears deck. If you look through the list, I had basically everything you could want, and the deck was insane when I was on the play. And when I was on the draw, I basically could never be any kind of unfair deck because they set up way too much on turn one for me before I could get down any kind of prison piece that it was kind of very difficult to actually win. So if well, I'm sitting down to draft this you, cube... You didn't take the, the key piece of advice. Yes, I, did, I didn't win the roll. You're right. How could I? So if I'm sitting down to draft this cube, my approach is I am going to be trying desperately to do the most unfair thing. And I think... I just think it's the best way to get to win, frankly. I think if you look at the, the 3-0s of this list historically, it's... Never a fair deck. Fair in big air quotes, because fair is very different here, but uh, it's never your green deck or your hate bears deck. It's always somebody that got to do the most unfair thing. And we know exactly who that somebody is. <laughs> Allison, if you're listening, you're rude. <laughs> you ruined Patrick's day when he drafted this cube for the first time. Ugh. Time crime, Andy. You know me, et cetera, et cetera. I just got to say, we recorded this episode before we played a draft this week of the Turbo Cube and... Of course, Allison 3 owed, and of course, Allison 3 owed with the most <laughs> insufferably frustrating deck that takes the longest possible turns and then kills you in the slowest, most convoluted way. So a prophetic shout out to Allison, who is by far the MVP of this cube. She will not be at KubeCon, so you may rest easy. You will not have to suffer the same fate I did this past Tuesday. Our next category here is stuff that is like, uh, just... It's just nipping at the heels of uh, eggs. So again, we have those six cards. Maybe I think you're right. Mystic Redaction is a card I just missed. So six, seven cards. We, we take over power. We have power in this context. Then we have these cards that are right below those cards. And so this is a longer list, but I think Urza's in this list, like you said. Card is very powerful. It does a lot of stuff. I put Paradoxical Outcome and Windfall, and we'll get to a couple other like wheel-style effects here, cards that draw a ton of cards. Card advantage can sometimes be a choke point on a unfair deck. That's a great deck. point, yeah. There's tons of cycling. There's tons of like cantripping, like one-for-one one card replacement. But I definitely had the experience early on playing this cube where I built a pretty unfair deck with lots of cantrips. And then I had too many lands in my first version of my deck. And I had like a turn wire went off. And then I had eight lands in my hand and nothing else. And I was like, cool, I drew all the lands in my deck. Now what do I do? Well, you should have drafted trade routes, obviously, but barring that... That's the next card on my list here. Excellent. Uh, trade routes is uh, is also a really really powerful effect that just says all your lands have cycling now, and the cycling is free. So if you ever draw lands you don't want, you just turn that into more cards. That is well worth the one blue mana investment, I think. Not to mention the bouncing lands back to your hand mode, which does come up. And there has been some issues with this card in the past. Thassa's Oracle was in the cube very briefly, and with trade routes, and you could very easily mulligan towards uh, trade routes. It was just like a turn one guaranteed win. I'm not sure there's currently anything that degenerate in this environment, but if you can find a way to win based on, like, having no cards in your deck, or maybe you have some cycling payoff, that's definitely something to be mindful if you're trying to break this cube. Yeah, I would look at trade routes first if you were seeking to break it. Uh, the reason that was so degenerate, right, is because you were motivated to put no other cards in your deck, basically. Yeah, yeah. Like, you're just motivated to play, like, you know, 30 lands, trade routes, Thassa's Oracle, and, like, any, like, power you happen to be passed, right? Like, something that's still mana positive and, and card positive is still better than a land in this case, but the fact that you can just thin your deck to effectively any size with trade routes if you mulligan to it means that you can basically win very reliably with that. And the reason it's degenerate is because it, it 
takes away all the fun of drafting all the other cards because you just get to put more lands in your deck. I have a couple cards here I have not actually played with, but I am certain are broken, and Bergy is among them, uh, Bergy God of Storytelling. This has to be a card that is a really high pick in this environment. I haven't done it myself yet, so I'm not quite sure how to rate that, but it's got to be right up there. Bergy is a blast. Uh, she was a key piece of my only turn one win. Galvanic Relay is one of the only actual Storm cards in this list, which, for obvious reasons, is quite powerful. I think this one is not totally broken here because you do have to wait a turn, and a turn is a lot in this environment. So the fact that you get to basically say, I'm going to win next turn now because I just effectively drew my whole deck with this impulsive draw, that gives your opponent a window to do something about it, which I think makes it more fair than a Tendrils of Agony would be, which would be not any fun in this cube because you would just win. That's definitely a, a downside in terms of power level, but yeah, this is still one of the premier, most powerful things you could be doing in red in this environment. Wheel of Fortune, just like Windfall and Paradoxical Outcome. Underworld Breach, just like Yogg's Will. Tireless Tracker's in this category, which you might not uh, think about. I put Tireless Tracker up here. I think this is the reason to be in green in this environment, frankly. It just turns all of your lands into another card while still having the land. And there is a lands deck here with Fast Bond and Summer Bloom, and this is the most important piece to that deck, I think. More so than Fast Bond or Summer Bloom. There's a couple ways to put extra lands into play, but being able to actually draw cards off all those lands is what's key to the engine. So I rate Tyler's Tracker this highly. I put it up here. Yeah, so critically, it's whenever you play a land, you get a clue, and that clue has an activated ability, which is, like everything, discounted. So that's why you can sort of shortcut it to play exactly. a land, draw a card. I have Arcbound Ravager up here, too. This is a card I take very highly because it can turn all of your dinky little cantripping artifacts into plus one, plus one counters, and there's a lot of artifact creatures running around, so you have a pretty safe way to keep that power and toughness on board, even in the face of some removal. Skull Clamp is up here, I think. Is Talarian Academy up here? What do you think? I'm not sure. I, I feel like, so there is Gaia's Cradle and Talarian Academy. I feel like Gaia's Cradle is more of a role player in the sort of theoretical deck that it fits in. Talarian Academy does a lot of stuff. It makes a lot of blue mana, but you have to have something to be able to do with that mana, which I think is interesting about a couple other effects that, that we'll talk about. I think it's definitely really, really good. The question is, is it like this tier of good where it's like right below eggs, I'm taking it. And I'm not sure. You might need to be like already in a more specifically artifacts deck. I mean, every deck's going to have some artifacts, right? Because every deck's going to open an egg and you're going to play the egg. But that's not enough artifacts don't, to play don't a Talarian promise, Academy. Don't promise people this. They're going to they're gonna end up being salty when they're the one drafter that doesn't have any eggs. <laughs> Most decks will have some unfair egg stuff going on, but that's not enough, obviously, to play Talarian Academy. You have to be in an artifact deck before that lane becomes reliable. So I don't actually know how to rate that, but I think its ceiling is very, very high. And the same is true of Urza's Saga, I think. This, I think, is a very reliable but slow win condition for these decks because uh, it's a land they can't counter it you get to make two tokens for free two big constructs and they are going to be big in the right deck and then also go get one more hopefully an egg or another power piece and so when it dies you make more mana and draw more cards like it does a lot that's what i have here in my like a tier just right above the peaks of those power levels what else is in your on your list well, I would just say that Talarian Academy and Urza Saga are the two that I'm least confident in my understanding and evaluation of. I could see them being extremely, extremely powerful. Obviously, like they can do so much. But again, you have to rate that relative to everything else that you can do in this context. I would love to see, honestly, Urza Saga in a Hate Bears deck that's you know locking people down, limiting number of spells that can be cast for turn. But then you can just use this ability and make a whole bunch of, of huge creatures with it. So yeah, Urza Saga it's, it's is great with lock pieces. Like I love it in the uh, shops decks in the Degenerate Micro Cube. So that would be a cool application of this for sure. You mentioned Skull Clamp. This is the reason to be playing 
Stoneforge Mystic. There is an Umazawa's Jite in here as well, but that just takes eh. so long to get going. I think like, that card's pretty bad you here. Wanna, yeah, absolutely. So again, I think that's kind of similar to Oko. A little bit of a benchmark card just to sort of highlight the distinction of this environment. But Skull Clamp, especially if you can build around it a little bit and include some creatures, is extremely powerful. Bygone Bishop is another one that I put up here as well because it similarly just sort of solves this problem for decks of being able to draw a whole bunch of cards and keep your hand full so you can actually take advantage of this mana discount. It's a little bit less reliable, but I think being in white where it is, uh, is it's just less replaceable. Yeah, that card I have in my like, how good is this is we're talking about category? And I, I think it's right up there. I rate it lower than all the cards I just listed, but not too much lower. We're getting into like the role player territory. I think it's a very solid role player. Sure. It is funny to look at the difference between Mentor of the Meek and Bygone Bishop, where just because of sort of an implementation detail, Bygone Bishop makes a token, which lets you draw cards, so it gets the discount, whereas Mentor of the Meek has the triggered ability, which doesn't. So much better than Mentor of the Meek. Which is not in the list for that reason. Yeah. Below this, for me, if we're again looking at this tier list, so again, just to recap, we have six, seven-ish cards that I think are irreplaceable, essential win conditions in this environment. We have the power, which by my count is 19 cards. So there's 19 cards running around. On average, each drafter is going to have about two of these in their deck. Some drafters will have more. Some drafters will have less. Hopefully, that's not you. Then we have this sort of stuff that's right below that in terms of power level, which is a really strong pull into playing that kind of deck or that color or whatever, but it's not you know, at the peaks of power. I think this is maybe where you and I are going to diverge in our drafting strategies because the next tier for me is just pretty much anything I can do for free. If I can do it for free, I'm taking it over almost anything that costs me mana. So this includes anything that just cycles for free, right? So we're not talking about mana positive stuff. We're just talking about card neutral cycle through your deck. There are 35 cards with cycling in the cube that are not land cycling. I'm, I'm leaving land cycling out. That's a very different category for me. They both have the word cycling in it, but uh, I do not put land cycling in this category. Uh, this is just free cycling cards. There's a couple of little artifacts like Elsewhere Flask and Sleeper Dart and Icker Wellspring, which also just draw a card. That's all they do, pretty much. They have a little like trinket text attached to them, which might come up, but you put them in your deck as they draw you a card. Then there's the stuff that's actually slow card positive cards like Sunset Pyramid and Spare Supplies and Reckoner Bankbuster and Maze Mind Tome. These are all cards that will draw you cards, but only at the rate of one per turn with some other stuff going on, and they eventually go away. Uh, I still rate these very, very highly, because the first card draw is free off of all of these. You get to play it, you get to draw a card, and that's what I'm playing it for. To, to me, there's a big gap between the free cycling and these cards that actually do generate card advantage. Uh, spare supplies, like you're saying, it is pretty slow, but because the floor, the cost of, of including your deck is just, it draws you a card immediately, it's essentially just thinning your deck. That is such a high reward to be able to get that second card that I value those cards really highly. The one I might put near those higher tier cards for me is Reckoner Bankbuster. I haven't played this with this one yet. It just came out with Neon Dynasty, so I haven't had it in a deck with this cube just yet. But the fact that this one, while drawing you cards for the first couple turns is in play, also spits out 1-1 creatures and treasure tokens. Like, it does a lot more. And it itself is a 4-4, which could be relevant. I'm not sure. I don't know how often that's going to come up. So that one might be better, but... Uh, honestly, like, yes, these are card positive, and I, I would take them over a free cycling card if you put them side by side in a pack, but to me, they're, like, pretty close uh, in, in my evaluation, so uh, there's a difference there in just how we're approaching the environment. I would also just say... Pay attention and look out for cards with cycling too. There might be cards that seem sort of marginal or sort of bad and you might overlook them, but always just double check, you know, here's Unburdened. Do you want a Mind Rot in this format? Probably not, but uh, do you want a 
free, free unburdened? <laughs> Absolutely. And every once in a while, I've seen most of these cards. Uh, de deliberately, all of the cards with Cycling 2 that are included are intended to have some potential to be played. Right. You and didn't just jam every single card with Cycling 2 right. in the cube, because that would be a little bit uninspired. Some are much more narrow than others, but a lot of them have come up. I also got a couple more of these uh, just free cycling cards here, like Cranial Archive, Alchemist Vial, Scrabbling Claws, Conjurer's Bobble. Brainstone's maybe a little better than the others because uh, you do have a lot of ways to get a shuffle, and the Brainstorm ability on that card for free is probably quite powerful. Then we're still in the same tier for me. These are kind of unordered. Then we have free mana, anything that produces mana and is free. Now, these are maybe not as good as people originally think. These are essentially Moxin, right? Like Mindstone uh, is a Moxin. Guardian Idols and Enter the Battlefield tap Moxin. Mimic is a card we've seen here too. It's only a Lotus Petal. It makes mana once, but still quite good. I still rate these very highly, but uh, not as high as you might expect because there's not always things to do with your mana, as I said before. So I, I want these in my deck. I take them over the rest of the cards. We're not going to list all the cards in the queue, but everything we haven't talked about, I take these over, but still below those big payoffs, the actual power, and the things just below that. I would actually have a, a pretty big difference between those. Mindstone does just cycle, but if it was just something that made colorless mana, even more than maybe it's hard to use all your mana, it's really hard sometimes to use colorless mana because the things that you're prioritizing are things that are discounted to zero or just their colored pips. It's very rare that you're actually able to use excess colorless mana. Yeah, um, I mean, Soul Ring is in this cube, and, and it's, it's in this category for me. I think it's worse than Mindstone. I would take Mindstone over Soul Ring because oh, you get, to, sure, you get yeah. to cash it in for a card. You're looking at a pack and pick one Soul Ring or Teferi's Tutelage. You want Teferi's Tutelage. Let the let the next person have that Soul Ring. Tutelage is much better here. Yeah, I would definitely call Soul Ring a build round in this environment. You definitely need a lot of things with generic mana costs, whether that's your uh, Aetherflux Re Reservoir and maybe a couple other three mana value artifacts or you're trying to do something with uh, artifact X spells. Um, but beyond that, I'm not going to be putting it in my deck. Oh, I am putting it in my deck for sure. It's free. Anything I can do for free, I'm putting in my deck. Like, I'm also just putting free creatures in my deck, mm -hmm. right? Like, my deck is doing a supposedly unfair thing. I'm also just totally jamming Vault Scourge, Steel Overseer, Spell Skype, Scrap Heap Scrounger. Like, get all these cards in my deck. They're all free. And free is... Uh, this is how I approach the environment. I always want to do stuff for free. I think it's uh, it's really powerful. So that's where I definitely diverge a little bit, where I'm not going to be playing a lot of those, those cards unless I, I feel like they're supported, unless I'm trying to play a proactive deck that wants to get creatures in play. Otherwise, I just don't know how effective they are. Sure, it's it's free, but do I want some random 2-1 flyer? Well, the reason I want it is because uh, I'm casting a spell for free, and that's going to trigger my Psy or that's whatever. True. Uh, that's true, is, but again, I think that would be a reason to do it. Like, that that justifies And my point is, more. that's what I'm always drafting to in this environment. Fair. Unless I'm specifically testing another deck, that's the deck I'm always, I always want to draft. Do you put the crystals in the same category? They are free cyclers, yep. so I feel like those are obviously a thing you're always going to play, but I think the fact that you can also just play them to set up a big next turn actually makes them quite a bit higher in, in this group of cycling cards for me. It's funny, I, I put them just with the rest of the free cyclers and i don't think i've ever played a crystal i just always cycle them i, I can't think of a time i ever actually cast Usually a crystal you cycle them. i would say it's at least for me probably 60 percent or more that you cycle them yeah so I, i've never actually cast them i'm pretty sure uh but if you're doing something a little slower maybe it does make sense but for me it's like oh good i get to draw more cards this is great and if you do cast it, it does give you back that mana right away because they enter untapped. You can tap it for colored mana. Right. Uh, so, so it's free to cast. It's it's either free in terms of mana or free in terms of cards all the time. You just get to choose what resource you're, you're interested in. Yeah. Which I, I think that modality actually makes them quite powerful. Though mana neutral things are not hard to come by. So it's the card draw things. And I guess if we're like... 
we want to get like a little more detail within this tier, I do definitely put the artifact cantrippers above the free cyclers because a lot of the things we mentioned as the big payoffs are not going to trigger any cycling a card. Cycling a card is not casting a spell. You're not going to trigger your monastery mentor or your psi. So the cranial archives and alchemist vials and conjurers bobbles of the world are actually, uh, I think, a notch higher on the, on this tier list for me than, uh, than anything it just says cycling to. That's a great point. They do work with Mystic Redaction and Ominous Seas, if you're interested in doing that. But and yeah, Tutelage. Be aware of the specific kinds of enablers. I guess, you know, during the draft, you want to be aware of what the possibilities are and that those are slightly different effects. But then as you're drafting your deck and playing your games, then you can start thinking about what specific strategy you have and making sure you pay attention to do the things actually trigger the things you want to do like uh, you can definitely take a lot of game actions and not up your storm count as much as you thought you did yeah for sure and then the last category here this is actually like the lowest of the free things for me and that's anything that is a land cycler and there's literally things with land cycling there's both basic land cycling in the cube and there's also basic typed land cycling like your plane cycling or swamp cycling there's also mycosynth wellspring ecologist terrarium or millery sphere wayfarers bauble expedition map environmental sciences all of these just say go get a land for free Expedition map, probably the best among them, because if you did end up with a Telerian Academy or whatever, that's a free copy of your Telerian Academy, or, or very importantly, the ones that can cycle for one of the cycling lands, because the cycling duels are in here, essentially become cyclers, right? Become because modal, where you can either get a land or you can go just draw another card and take more game actions. Right. So if, uh, you know, your swamp cycling goes and gets your fetid pools and then you cycle your fetid pools, you essentially just cycled that card that swamp cycled. So... Those are pretty high. The like Wayfarers, Baubles, and Armillary Spheres of the world, and the actual basic land cycling cards, like your Sylvan Reclamations, those are the lowest on this list for me. And I've come down to them significantly from where I was originally, because again, the game's going to be like two or three turns long. So you really just have them as a land in your deck, and you want one of them in your opening hand, so you have a land on the first turn of the game. But beyond that, they're kind of dead cards, because you can't often cast them, and cycling them for a land often does nothing. Yeah, I mean, Armillary Sphere, to me, I think is one of the most, the biggest delta between how broken it looked to me initially when we built this cube and how broken it feels, Yeah, uh, which is not very much. It's like free, no mana, get two basic lands, but for all the reasons about why I really value the dual lands and land cyclers that can fetch the dual lands to make my mana work better, and the fact that I'm going to have a very small basic count, often at the end of the draft, looking at, at deck building, it's like, well, I, I can't fit enough basics in this deck right. that I'm comfortable playing this, so definitely I, I'm a lot lower on that and uh, just to mention trade routes one more time trade routes in your deck makes these cards a lot better because you actually can cycle all those lands you get so your armillary sphere does actually become divination which could be cool if you get to that pull that cool. off i like that after that anthony all the rest of the cards are in a very similar slurry for me and i'm sure i've missed a couple cards here i'm sure there's some things that are standouts that i overlooked but beyond that it's like that's what i want my deck to consist of and then whatever else is in there is kind of incidental as far as i'm concerned i don't draft this environment archetypally like you do but i know you do draft this environment more archetypally so do you want to talk about some of the more interesting decks that can come together when drafted properly yeah so a lot of this is a little bit speculative because we have limited playtest experience and the cubes evolved a little bit so some things have been bolstered a little bit and we're not necessarily really sure how they play out but i'd love to see more people this is one of the things i'd love to see from cubecon is just more people trying these more diverse strategies i mean none of these cards are duds it have to be, has to be said right like right they're all quite good like i'm overlooking card like wood elves which is one mana get a one one and also get a land from your library into play like that's a really good card but it's just a little bit below 
all the other stuff that I've already talked about. Totally. Well, let's start looking at green a little bit, because I think Wood Elves is really good to point out that it gets you a forest untapped. Uh, and this is true of a lot of the sort of ramp package that's in green. We have Harrow, we have Nature's Lore. A lot of these things, if it comes into play untapped, can really enable some broken chaining together of a bunch of cards. And this is why Tireless Tracker is such a big, important right. card for me in green. It is like the reason to be in green, in my opinion, in this environment. And we've more recently added some additional cards to try and support this, like we talked about Fast Bond and Summer Bloom. There's also Oracle of Moldaya and Azusa, so it's definitely a lot of ways you can get a lot of extra land drops. And then what are you going to do with all this mana in green? Well, you're going to cast Jade Mage, uh, which... Oh, this, you can hear the <laughs> smile on his face, I'm sure. You can, It just says green mana make a sapperling, and... I, so think about this a little bit from a design perspective. How to make some kind of green ramp package, which seems really fun in this context, work is difficult because, again, your big, huge things get a discount, but that discount isn't super impactful. Uh, and even then, just casting your one big thing is just feels kind of lackluster. So I really like Jade Mage as a payoff for this green deck because it lets you go super wide, use all of your mana super efficiently, no matter how much mana you have. It's also weirdly just difficult to replace. There aren't a lot of similar effects that just say, like, one mana, do a thing. So there's actually three copies of Jade Mage just to try and make that work. Um, the one thing you break Singleton on in the entire cube, correct? It's, it's worth... Well, there are some duplicates on lands as well. So yeah, this green deck is, I think, different than the other decks in the cube because it plays a lot more lands because you You really want, need lands to, you to want those land to, drops. It's not that the game is going to last many more turns, ideally. You're still going to win very quickly, but uh, you need lands in your deck for all these cards to do what they say on the tin. Uh, especially your, like, you know, Summer Blooms, right? Summer Bloom doesn't do anything if you don't have any lands in hand, so... Especially if a lot of the things that you're thinking of as lands are actually cycling cards and cards that are going to go get more lands from your, your library. Yeah, and this is one of the decks that I think can play the fewest artifacts in a cube that I think is largely dominated and defined by artifacts. For sure. One other payoff for this is Assault Formation. This, again, looks kind of dorky, but essentially says one mana your whole team gets plus one plus one, which I haven't seen this pan out very much, but I think is potentially a legitimate win condition for a green deck. Another key role player here that specifically just because it works so well with Jade Mage is Gaia's Cradle. Initially, when I started laying this out, it was more focused on just like making draft chaff into power, but we ended up just throwing it's, in you know, the fun to make power Academy. into power. <laughs> yeah, make power into power. So Gaia's Cradle is in this environment. You can tutor it up with your expedition map and a couple other things. So that's definitely something to look out for. And I think it's one of the easiest ways to sort of get into this deck because... Goes pretty dummy with Jade Mage. Yeah, looking at Jade Mage, maybe not so exciting, but it does look pretty good once you have a guy's cradle. There's also a little bit of artifact hate in greens. So this again is a little bit more speculative, but we have things like Collector Oof and Manglehorn that give green just some more tools to try and counter this, you know, thing that we've mostly been talking about, which is the most broken thing you can do in this environment. The last thing I'll point out is there's a little bit of a token theme. Scurry Oak and Chatterfang are kind of a ton of fun, and a lot of these things are making tokens. Even your Tireless Tracker is making tokens, so if you have a Chatterfang in play, you can get a really big deck really quickly all of a sudden with, with these cards. Oh, you should put... Uh, this is the play podcast, not the design podcast. What are we doing? You should put the card... Academy Manufacturer, the card that uh, if you would make oh, a yeah, food or a clue good, yeah. or a treasure, you make all three. Yeah, that's a real turbo card. Turbo accounting. It's also only... It's a three mana card, so you can right. cast it for one, which I think is the sweet spot in this environment. And there's enough things that are making those kinds of tokens that uh, I think it'd be a really cool payoff in the right deck. So I'd love to see more people pushing that a little bit, but yeah, I'm, I'm. It's definitely not the most broken thing you can do in this environment. I don't think. 
Another thing that's a little bit more thematic uh, that I've been trying to bolster more recently is a little bit of a Hate Bear style deck, which we've mentioned, uh, mostly focused in white, although you could definitely combine it with some of the interactive elements from green as well, which is just a lot of cards that tax your opponent, that prevent card draw, that prevent casting multiple spells a turn, things like that. There's and These Hate Bears are really, really effective against really the effective. unfair decks. Like, if you... I had drafted this Hate Bears deck, and I think I had a really good version of it, and Archon of Amiria was just the, one of the best cards I could possibly have, because your hand is full of all these free cycling cards, and now you can only cast one a turn, and so you can't even find your answer, because finding your answer involves casting a spell, and you're slowed down by a turn because your lands enter the battlefield tapped if they're non-basic. Uh, that was, I think, one of the better Hate Bears I had, and there's a lot of little hate creatures that similarly just kind of shut things off, right? Thalia or Glowrider, if you're depending on being able to cast these spells for free, and now they cost one. That's that a is huge so difference. much worse than going from one to two or two to three or whatever. It, it slows your deck down by so, so much. I mean, imagine if you had a, a two-mana spell that you were sort of thinking of your land in your hand because right. it was going to tutor up lands for you, and now... My environmental sciences is just a land. Oh, exactly. now it's oh, a tapped land. It's Well, not even a tapped land. You might literally not be able to cast it if you don't have another right. mana source in it, your hand. Yeah, you didn't keep a land... You didn't keep a hand with actual land in it, and their turn one involved a Vryn Wing Mare or whatever. So this is a little bit speculative. I think, as you said, a, a big drawback to this strategy is that it really matters whether or not you're on the play or on the draw, and sometimes your opponent just does so much on the play that your Archon just doesn't do anything anymore. But I, I would also say, if you're especially drafting with other people who might be aware of this environment a little bit more and might be willing to draft this kind of deck, in your unfair deck, the like basic effects like removal is going to start to become a lot more relevant uh, in the way you sequence against these decks. Yeah. I, I will say, so when I drafted my Hate Bears deck, which I think was really good, I had like all the cards you could possibly want it to have if you look at this cube list. My first match was actually against somebody who was new to the cube and wasn't really doing an unfair thing. It was kind of just like, here are good cards that I liked in like two colors. And I did win that match, but it was close because I was playing this deck that was designed to hate on the most unfair thing. And they were like, okay, I play a Hellrider. And I'm like, uh, well, uh, <laughs> that's going to be a problem. Mike creatures aren't three threes i got to figure out what to do about that uh, so it's interesting it's a perfect example i think of how the like metagame does in fact yeah. shake out because i won that match kind of by the hair of my teeth it was a, a i won it two one and then i went on to face an unfair deck where i lost the die roll and i lost the games i didn't go first and i easily easily won the games where i went first and then the third round same thing happened but i won the die roll so i ended up going two one but against the unfair decks it was like really just who won the coin flip and unless someone got totally screwed by their mulligan that's the person that was going to win. And in the like more fair matchup, it was like real magic all of a sudden. I was like, oh, we're, I got to think about how I'm attacking and blocking. What is this? This is not supposed to be the turbo cube. Yeah, so I would say pay attention a little bit to who you're drafting with. Be aware that there are a variety of decks in this format and potentially just consider sideboard options like maybe you just need to sideboard into a more fair deck against somebody that has these kinds of hate tools and that's really one of the reasons that we've bumped up the size of the actual draft pool is just so you do have a little bit more flexibility to draft and play with a sideboard yeah i'm hoping there's some counterplay and we see back and yeah. forth here so one other specific deck that I think is worth talking about is just Mono Red or Red X Aggro. This is a deck that I've often fallen into and uh, been, you know, done a lot of 2-1s. A lot of 2-1s. <laughs> a lot of 2-1s. But you can draft extremely effective aggro decks that just can literally attack for lethal on turn one. The key to this, I think, is you're just trying to get uh, all the free and very cheap creatures that get into the play fast. Haste really, really matters. Haste is kind of like getting an extra turn. So things like Lelia the Blade Reforged are super powerful. And Lelia, especially because of her ability that some people might not remember, 
She gets bigger not just when she exiles a card to her own ability, but whenever you exile a card from your library or graveyard. And there are a lot of ways that you can incidentally do that in this yep. in this environment. Like, just combine it with Underworld Breach and uh, GG's. Have a good one, opponent. Or Galvanic Relay is really the, the prime thing because mm. it's uh, it's got Storm, so each of those are separate triggers, and you can end up just Tasty. having Lelia attack 420 if you're into that. Mana positive effect, so I do think this can overlap a little bit with a lot of the broken stuff, unlike the the white hate bears, which is kind of a, a lot of symmetrical effects, which makes that difficult to also be doing the broken thing. In the red decks, you can still be doing the, the broken thing, so you absolutely want Bergy in your red aggressive deck, so you can just turbo out a, a huge amount of cards on turn one. There are also a fair number of things that are just in themselves mana positive, things like Plundering Barbarian that enter and make a treasure token, which these are maybe less relevant, but they are role players in these decks. That's mana neutral. Uh, correct, mana, mana neutral, positive. yeah. And there's there's some others that, I, I don't know, if you have a, a bunch of wizards and, and clerics and rogues and warriors, sure, maybe you'll end up with a bunch of mana, but you can sort of think of these as, yeah, role players that you're going to put in your deck and try and turbo out your hand. Another thing that I think is really valuable is Thopter Engineer. This will give all of your artifact creatures haste, which you want to be drafting as many of those free creatures as you can. Giving them haste is a huge deal. There's also Jawbone Skulkin, which is an artifact creature that gives your red creatures haste. Combine these together, you've got a great turn one, and hopefully you get your opponent dead before they burn you out with the Aetherflux Reservoir. This is honestly the deck I am second most interested in drafting. If I'm sitting between Allison and uh, Allison's clone at the draft table, and I know I'm not going to be able to get a like truly broken, unfair deck, this is probably what I'll be looking to do, because it also plays really nicely with whatever of that broken stuff you can get your hands on. Exactly, yeah. Uh, so you get to do like as much broken stuff as you can, and then when you run out of like truly broken stuff to do, I guess you make a 9-9 Lelian attack. You know, <laughs> I, I, I guess Perfect. that's what you do. This deck can definitely be very, very scary. And like you said, you have one on turn one, by attacking for lethal. So that's fair magic, baby. You attack. <laughs> fair, you attack. Totally fair magic. Did that turn also involve Bergy and a Wheel of Fortune and Galvanic Relay? Yes, it did. Totally fair attacking for lethal turn one. Mm -hmm. Subira, I think, is another huge role player here. This is just one that both gives you a lot of evasion, which we talk about how reach is important in the, the slow grindy games of the regular cube a lot. I feel like it's also very important here as well. She also generates a lot of card advantage. So this is a key card, which I think gets overlooked and is one of the things that's going to pull me into a red aggro deck. I feel like it's also possible to sort of add another color. I feel like for me, my inclination is always adding blue for some other kinds of interaction or black for similar reasons to, yeah, just give the deck a little bit more flexibility in different situations, potentially some other sideboard plans. Yeah, I feel like blue and black don't have quite as much of an identity. You just have, look at all these incredible one mana counter spells and incredible one mana hand hate cards, right? Yeah, I think that's the next thing to look at is just like the interaction. We've been talking a lot about proactive stuff and how you're going to win the game, but there is a lot of really potent interaction in this environment as well. Eh. Okay, fair. <laughs> I, I, I think if we talked about it for two minutes, then the relative time we spent talking about it would mirror the actual importance in gameplay to me. I think it's like every once in a while my opponent has a removal spell and I'm like, darn but it doesn't come up that often. Fair point. So again, this is a difficult card evaluation space where these cards get I could be totally wrong. Powerful. Again, like this is the environment I'm much less confident in. It could be that you could draft a sick control deck here because some of these decks are kind of fragile, right? Like if you're relying yeah, on your absolutely. on your big payoff, your monastery mentor or whatever. Now, make sure your removal is instant speed and don't be on the draw again, but yep. but but uh it's but, only one only one rule. But I could definitely imagine a deck where it's 
trying to stop everybody else's deck and then win with some other with a midnight clock or something it's kind of a slow win condition but does eventually get there midnight clock is one that maybe we're overlooking a little bit that card can kind of do a lot but to give some specific examples of the kind of interaction we have these kind of junky cards like convolute which is two and a blue to counter a spell unless their opponent pays four which is just going to be a one mana hard counter essentially which Again, it's a little bit swingy, but if you are on the play, you just play an island and maybe counter their Terrarian or counter their Guild Globe, whatever your opponent's doing, you can potentially just shut them down. Or I think more likely if they are based on one particular, they're really looking for one particular win condition, being able to counter that is potentially going to be pretty powerful. In black, similarly, we have things like Obnexilus' Cruelty and Mythos of Nethroi, which are just going to be one mana hard removal, which is going to take care of most things. So I definitely think that there is potential for... Uh, a lot of counterplay there, but again, it, it, the timing is tricky, so I, I don't know if I can give good advice on how to really play with those, but I feel, especially in like the aggressive decks, having access to some amount of removal. Similarly, in red, there's just a lot of weird draft cards that end up being pretty powerful, things like Flame Spill, which is going to be one mana to deal four to anything, uh, and a couple of the similar things, so there's some efficient options in most of those colors. I forgot Shadow of the Grave in my uh, my Ooh, like enabler that's a section. Cool one. That one is up there. It's a lot harder to make work, but well, I just it is I have a cool. pretty good time making that work. That's up there, I think, uh, with your like Yogmoth's Wills, where it's like you need the right kind of deck for it. But when you do have that deck, it is a a very key piece that can do a lot. Something else we have in black is some really powerful targeted hand hate. We have something like Toll of Invasion, which is essentially just Thoughtseize that doesn't have the drawback of you losing two life, but you do amass one, make a token. So uh, again, it's I'm not as good at evaluating these, but I, I think that these could be potentially very powerful in either just a black-blue or black-red controlling deck that wants to, again, make sure you get those powerful uh, threats out of your opponent's hand proactively, or potentially in a black-white deck that's using a combination of hate bears and targeted hand hate to just shut down your opponent's plan. Yeah, I mean... I'm maybe being a little dismissive of the non-unfair stuff, uh, and that's not because any of these cards are duds, right? Like, all of these cards have a lot of potential in this environment because you've chosen them very carefully, but there's a lot of them, right? And they're kind of more interchangeable, right? There's a lot of decent ways to interact if you want one. I always have a couple of ways to interact in my, in my decks, even the most unfair ones. I think we should spend a moment to talk about board wipes here because they are present in the environment. We have a Day of Judgment, a Shatter of the Sky, a Wrath of God, a Cleansing Nova, a Route, and they are actually relevant and here's how they are relevant. You cast them on your turn one after your opponent was on the play. They do their whole thing. They like poop their whole deck out on the table. And then you just wipe the board. And then you start over. It's not that hard to cast a effectively two mana spell on turn one. Because you just need any of these mana positive things we've talked about to make that happen. And then you just get to reset. So it's not like you're playing a board wipe to play this like long game as a control deck. Like it's just like immediately clean up what you did on one turn or two turns and then, you know, fix that problem. Well, yeah, I mean like it, you do expend resources doing all this, right? Like you do all this stuff and you like kind of dump your hand on the table. And so uh, a well-placed board wipe can be really, really effective. Uh, I've seen that be a key part of some decks and that's probably the interaction and removal that I rate the most highly. Yeah, it's interesting. I feel like maybe this says something about our playgroup, but I've also not seen them played very much in our playgroup, but I think that they are quite a little powerful. Um, I've been blown up by them a couple times where it's like, I didn't have the haste enabler. I did have my monastery mentor. I did make nine prowess tokens on the first turn of the game. So all I need is one non-creature spell next turn and you're dead. And they're just like, oh, shatter this guy. And I'm like, oh, okay. 
I think Cleansing Nova is also potentially relevant because it can destroy artifacts and enchantments, which are very relevant in this environment. I could see a little bit of a risk of if your opponent's playing one of the handful of Planeswalkers, for example, you could still be in a tough spot if you're hoping to just be able to have a hard reset button. But I agree. I'd like to see... I'd be curious to see people play these Wraths more. I, I honestly think that uh, I would, if I had a Wrath in my deck... And I was in those colors, again, colors in big air quotes, because I am pretty liberal with my interpretation of color in this cube. <laughs> I would pretty much always side it in on the draw. Yes, definitely. Uh, think, even if it's not in my main deck, based just on bring play. it in on the draw every single time until I've seen that my opponent's deck is not a kind of deck that's going to be answered by this. And there are some decks where you just board up doesn't do anything. They're killing you with either Flex Reservoir, right? So you don't need that board wipe. But uh, on the draw, I'm going to want those board wipes. I think it would be useful for us just to go through, we've touched on a lot of the key cards that are going to shape the format, but a couple of things that are maybe just going to over underperform or just behave in a weird way that it's good to be aware of. The first one I have is Deadly Designs. So this looks like a weird card. It's from a conspiracy set, but it's two mana for an enchantment and it has an activated ability to put a counter on Deadly Designs. Anyone can activate that ability. And when there are five or more counters on it, you can sacrifice it and destroy up to two target creatures. So this is essentially, again, going back to the efficient removal in black, a one black mana destroy two creatures. Like this is the most premium removal. It does behave a little bit weirdly that your opponent can activate it. So I made the mistake against Allison, of course, of uh, playing this turn one before she had any creatures in play because I assumed I can just use this later, but your opponent can activate this and force you to uh, just pop it off. You're not forced to destroy your own creature. It's up to two creatures, but this card might not work the way that you think it does, but it's worth being aware of because it is extremely powerful. Yeah, I would say this is not premium removal for me because of that thing you just said Mm -hmm. and because you have to play at sorcery speed. It is sorcery speed-ish. It's weird. It is essentially sorcery, it's sorcery speed, speed yeah. because if your opponent doesn't want you to do it, then they can just on your end right. step say like, you know, okay, destroy my two worst creatures, and right. then I'm going to do something more relevant next turn. So I, I rate the instant speed stuff higher than that, but it is worth noting that interesting interaction where you might not read that card as oh, one black man destroy two creatures, but that's what it's what it does. Containment Construct is an interesting one, which basically lets you cast cards that you cycle. I think this card is actually worse than it looks, uh, but still fairly relevant. It's most powerful with the crystals, if you have a couple of those. But a lot of the cycling cards, it's still going to be difficult to have the mana cost to be able to both cycle and then play them. But again, this is still a free 2-1, so maybe in just a a deck that's caring about getting as many artifacts in play, you might still want to play that. I think this could be very, very good in the right deck, but you do need the right deck for it. Uh, But like I said, it's a free creature, so I'm taking it almost over almost anything but the most powerful cards. Here's a weird one. Mer Superion. Two mana for a 5-6, but spend only mana produced by creatures to cast Mere Superion. You don't have to spend any mana to cast You don't cast have to spend Mere any Superion. mana, so don't worry about that rider. It's fine. We got you. It's just a free 5-6. Enjoy. Bag of Holding is one of my classic, I think what the kids would call a meme card. I think the card's actually pretty relevant here. Basically, you're probably not going to be paying the cost to loot with it, but there is a lot of other cycling happening. So I think it is a way that you can generate a fair amount of value. It's like a one-time big containment construct. Big containment construct. And then, I mean, really, if you're doing a bunch of cycling and then you get all those cards back into your hand, it's it's not like you're drawing those bad cards again. You're just going to cycle them again. Yep. Clear the Mind, I think, is a, another card that's easy to overlook, but I think is pretty relevant because you are doing so much turbo-y stuff. You might have a deck that has a few very key pieces, key win conditions. Being able to recycle your graveyard for just one blue mana, I think, is pretty powerful, and it draws you that card back. So it is just a mana cost, not a card cost. And Cranial Archive does similar things in Colorless. So I, I do think this is relevant, especially because there is some amount of mill in this environment. So... 
Yeah, that's a great point. You could easily just have your wind condition milled, and then that's not a great spot to be in. Mirage Mirror is another funny one that's easy to overlook. Card's good. Card is a lot better than it looks. Card's I don't good. think it's quite one of these role players, but it's essentially just one mana to cast it, but because it can for free become basically anything you want in the battlefield, it can rebate you that mana right away by turning into your land. And then for the rest of the game, it's just whatever the best thing on the battlefield is it's a copy of and it's largely insulated from removal because there's not a lot of removal that can hit any card type in the battlefield and it can become any card type so good luck to shattering it now it's a creature creature. yeah something that is weird about this is that you can activate this ability to have it become a target a copy of something but it doesn't retain that copy ability Uh, so you can either just activate this once or potentially you can do some tricky stuff of stacking up multiple activations. So if you there's want something to get, relevant, yeah. there's uh, potentially broken stuff you could do there. Yeah, I don't know about broken, but definitely cute. Cute. Right? Yeah, that's, like a, that's you, what I mean. If you cute have some stuff. tap ability you want to get one activation off of, but then you want it to be a different permanent afterwards, you can do both of those, right? You can stack them up so that it's the thing briefly that has a tap ability. You get to tap it, and then it becomes the third thing you okay, want to do. Okay, we're going we're gonna to discover a live combo. So you have you have Farmstead Gleaner in play, and you have a Soul Ring, and you activate Mirage Mirror 100 times targeting each alternately, and then you let those activations resolve, and then you tap it whenever it's a Farmstead Gleaner, and you, or sorry, untap it when it's a Farmstead Gleaner, tap it when it's a Soul Ring, and you make 200 mana and have a big walking 100, ballista. 100 Farmstead Gleaner, not quite as good as a walking ballista. <laughs> I was saying you could use the mana on something, but uh, you could just use it on Farmstead Gleaner. Oh, yeah, then you use that mana. Yeah, on, I, uh, I meant yeah. to cast the walking ballista, yeah. You, you forgot to do it. Oops, no, you still got the mana. Your mana pool, you're all good. Farmstead Gleaner is another little bit of a weird one that's maybe worth mentioning, just because there are a couple weird combos with it. This is a dinky little artifact that has an untap ability. I think it is a relatively powerful creature on its own, uh, but give it a pathway arrows, give, get in a, a vehicle out there, you can just make a huge guy all of a sudden. One other actual combo that is in the environment, like we mentioned, there aren't a ton of like one card combos. There is Heliod and Walking Ballista, so maybe another thing that uh, a, a fair white deck could be doing is have this sort of secret combo hidden away. We could talk about cool cards of this environment all day because really all of these cards are included because they are to some degree doing something cool and interesting. I do want to mention two other cards that I think are going to be a little bit overrated. One, well, maybe let's just lump together Jace the Mind Sculptor and Oko Thief of Crowns. These are obviously powerful cards, but uh, I think Planeswalkers are just a lot less powerful because the games are going to take not a ton of turns, so you're not going to get as much value off of them as you might hope. Another thing that's maybe a little bit funny is Force of Will and Force of Negation. I think these cards are also going to be overvalued, even though it seems really relevant to have free interaction for this kind of environment, especially. Good luck having another blue card in your hand. It's really hard to have another blue card in your hand. So I, I value these not super highly, but I could easily see myself being wrong about that. And maybe it's it's something that's actually worth trying to build around having blue cards to discard to Force of Will. Can we close on Void Mirror, which I think is... Maybe the most contentious yeah, and potentially point. most powerful card in the cube. So for those that don't know, Void Mirror is a two-mana artifact, so zero mana. And it says, whenever a player casts a spell, if no colored mana was spent to cast it, counter that spell. Would you also just lump Sphere of Resistance and Thorn of Amethyst into the same category, or do you see those more as dedicated? I don't think so, because those just kind effects. of like slow things down. This could like absolutely just... like. They have no option to spend extra mana to cast a spell. So this can be like a hard lock against some decks. This card was added because we were discussing this Hate Bears deck, which I desperately want to be a thing. I would love to have a countervailing... It's it's like a key thing that would create more diversity in the format because as soon as there's some sort of road bump to doing the completely unfair thing, 
the people that are drafting that kind of deck need to have some kind of sideboard plan or some kind of plan B. It just kind of shakes up the meta a little bit. Makes the whole meta kind of work, I think. And yeah, and right now I still think the best Hate Bears deck is probably a 2-1 deck in most pods. I don't think you're going to be able to, unless you really like it with your dice rolls, I guess. This was added for that Hate Bears deck, and obviously it's good there, right? Like, if you're playing the Hate Bears deck, you actually just have white creatures in your deck. You're going to be spending your white mana on your Thalias and your Vryn Wing Mares. Like, those spells are going to resolve just fine. Your opponent that's doing anything unfair will not be able to do their unfair stuff through Void Mirror. I have two things to say about this, having played this Hate Bears deck. And the first thing does kind of apply to the other spheres, like your Thorn of Amethyst and your Sphere of Resistance, which is that I had all of these in my deck when I drafted this Hate Bears deck, and... By pack three, it's like, do I take this egg now? Because I have all these cards that make this egg awful. And so it's like, you either have to like hard commit and pass up on the most powerful thing you can be doing in this cube to instead try and punish that thing because they don't play nicely together. We talked about how that red aggro deck can play all those broken unfair things and also just attack you for lethal in a like semi-turbo cube fair way. This deck, those cards become active liabilities if they're not drawn in the correct order. So... That's the first thing to note about Void Mirror and the and the other sort of like hate pieces. Yeah, I mean I would mention I, I think that if you deliberately wanted to like force this deck or the green deck, that might be a reason why, even though we're saying you're never passing these cards o- over anything, that could be an argument. Yeah, I, I had some picks in pack three where I was like, Oh, egg? <laughs> Can I offer you a nice egg in this trying time? Yeah, he's got an egg! Beautiful, shiny egg. Egg or another good hate bear that I know for sure is going to wheel. So I did end up taking the egg in that situation. But I think I didn't play it because I had so many ways to tax it that it was like going to be bad. The thing about Void Mirror, which I think is especially true of Void Mirror and a little bit less so of these other tools, is that I think in theory... You could just put this in any deck, and when you're on the play, just do your unfair thing and then end the turn with Void Mirror. And we don't know, I think, sitting here right now, if that is a like kind of toxic, degenerate play pattern of this cube that just makes Void Mirror and potentially even less Sphere of Resistance or whatever kind of unfair and broken. People have not really done that yet, but that is a potential thing where you could play a couple of these hate pieces in an otherwise unfair deck and have the plan of just... I side these out when I'm on the draw because yep. my opponent's already got a shot at doing their thing. When I'm on the play, though, I'm going to hope to do my thing first and then lock the game down. I haven't seen that play out, but it's theoretically a way things could go if you're lucky enough to draw your cards in the right order. Yeah, that's definitely where I'm at, where Void Mirror in particular, if I know I'm on the play, I want this in my deck all the time. I'm like siding it in. I'm probably main decking it, I think, in just about any deck. I'm going to gonna main deck it, it until I figure out. <laughs> For science, I'm main decking this card if I have a chance to. But yeah, that's that's definitely what I'm most worried about for KubeCon is, does it turn out that these cards are just completely make the format about who wins the dice roll, which I would like it not to be, but... Yeah, you mentioned you were worried about the regular cube being broken. I don't think you should be worried about that. Maybe you should be worried about this cube being broken. (laughs) This one you actually maybe should be worried about. I'm really curious to see what happens here. I do think that... I hope that the the difference is here, I hope people are looking for expecting a certain kind of experience, which is something to go weird and wild and us all to explore this really novel format. I feel like there's a lot more forgiveness that can be given to me of if this format's kind of broken. No one's going to be mad. No one's going to (laughs) be mad at you. Here's what I think. I think there'll be a lot of demand to draft this cube. You're the only cube with modified rules at all. I guess aside from the desert cube, or technically that's a modified rule, yeah, you can't play. Rule. You can't put lands in from outside the game. I mean, deck building. But this is like by far the most out there cube I think at KubeCon. 
I think there'll be a lot of people that want to draft it. And as I understand it, don't quote me on this, but I believe the way they're doing the pods is people get to choose what they want to play and then are sorted based on preferences, depending on how much they've gotten, what they wanted in previous sort of sessions, which I think will mean that it's going to be really hard to draft this cube twice. If there's enough people that want to play it, I think they're going to favor people getting to play it once over you getting to play it twice. If we just get nothing but people drafting this cube for the first time all weekend, that'll be a really interesting outcome. Yeah, I mean, you can always play it again. Just show up to Baltimore, uh, bring snacks, and we'll draft it again. Yeah, or, you know, invite us over to your Airbnb after the venue closes, and we'll turbo cube at 2 a.m. It's going to be an intense weekend, isn't it? <laughs> it's going to be pretty intense. It's true. Can we do that? Do they keep the cubes in, like, cube escrow I for actually the whole don't event? know. It's a great question. I actually don't know. That's a question. I'm, I'm None of my cubes are there. You should know the answer to that question, not me. All right, we went long again, but these, this is there's so much to talk about here. We even like didn't get to a lot of cards that I think are interesting and fun mm-hmm. to talk about, even though yeah. they're not like defining of the format. But we're really focusing on giving you enough information to come into this cube and hopefully, as Anthony said, maybe get that second draft experience and not have to have that first draft experience of not totally having your feet under you and kind of bombing out. I hope this was all very helpful. Uh, like I said, Anthony and I have slightly different approaches to this cube. Uh, if you look through the list, I think it's fun to look through this list because... You know, if you're looking through a regular cube list, you know what the cards do. This list, you have to read a lot to be like, wait, what actually does, like, like what actually does Mirror Entity do here? Let me read that one more time. What does that do in this environment? Like, they all do things that are a little bit different than you might expect. So, I think it's a fun read. And, uh, yeah, I hope as many people as possible get to play with a CubeCon because uh, it's been really fun for our playgroup to break out, as you said, Anthony, every once in a while. Yeah, that's that's where it is. It's a sometimes treat. All right, real quick, lightning round of stuff for you to be aware of. We do have surveys up for Warhammer 40k and for Unfinity. If you're playing any cards from these sets, go fill out the surveys on our website so we can know what people are most interested in. Especially true if you're interested in these cards, because not that many people are. So if you are, make sure that you get your uh, your voice heard in there. Yeah, Infinity in particular has gotten not much response. So I, I would love to see us get enough that we have some like statistically meaningful. I mean, we can always just publish the data somewhere, but I would love to do a nice little article with our visualizations that we do for these cool new uncards. I also want to mention that if you want to see some gameplay from the Turbo Cube, we do actually have some games that we streamed and recorded last summer of us playing the Turbo Cube. I think we have some where we grid draft and some where we had decks left over from an eight-person draft when we played the games together. I think maybe like watching 10 minutes of that is like way better than listening to us talk about it for an hour if you want to like understand what this environment is like because it's very visceral when you see what can happen in a turn in this environment. Yeah, so that's definitely true. I would check those out and also maybe maybe just give that little YouTube channel a subscribe and maybe there's going to be more streaming and videos coming soon. Mm-hmm. I don't want to, you know, don't want to tip my uh, hat too much, but we've maybe got a new streaming setup I'm excited about. So there'll be more videos over there at some point soon. I'd also say just on the topic of preparing for drafting these cubes and trying to come into it and get that like second draft experience rather than the first maybe. You can draft these of course on Cube Cobra, but be mindful the bots don't know that the rules oh, are changed. Oh, the bots are trash here. In <laughs> so addition bots, to all the ways Cube Cobra is currently broken, the bots are also awful at drafting this cube in the best of days. They don't know that the eggs are great, so you can draft some really busted decks, which is honestly kind of fun as well. We've had some good times just doing bot drafts and playing the like most busted versions of decks against each other, but be aware that when you're drafting with humans, they will not pass you all the eggs and you'll get, yeah, what did we say? Like two or three is, is kind of an average case. At least they will not if they listen to this episode. Maybe they didn't and they're maybe at the, a huge maybe disadvantage. Maybe the bots have gotten sentient and they've listened to this episode and they know now. That's it. I'm hungry. We got to go eat some dinner. This episode is over. All the music for this show is produced by DJ James and Nasty. All of the magic cards are produced by Wizards of the Coast. This show is produced by Anthony designing a cube that he kind of hates, like maybe like a kid of yours that just <laughs> is a little bit of a little shit. And, uh, you know, you just kind of regret it. But 
you know it's here. You, we can't get rid of it. What are you going to do? Cubes are forever. You must care for them. And then we talk about the microphones. So uh, I can't wait to watch people have fun with this at CubeCon. I'm just excited that I, I, I still, in this ridiculous context, still found a way to make it about saplings. You got to find a way to. I got to stay true to my. You've form. got a brand. You've got, got a brand. Saplings and things, and there's some squirrels. Yeah.